Oregon's one mission to bring Major League Baseball to Oregon. Powered by the Portland Gear Store and Guardian Games, this is the Diamonds and Roses podcast. And without further ado, your hosts, Ben and David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dave. I'm Rob. And And welcome welcome to the the Diamonds Diamonds and Roses podcast. How's it going, Dave? It's going really well. We got a great episode lined up for you today. We've got another in-studio guest, and uh, this this one brings a lot to the table. He does. Um, I think a lot more as I've researched uh, him over the last couple days. And I, I got to say, I've got, grown very fond of this particular individual and got a lot more respect for what he's done, not just on the field and as an adult, but what he did for youth. You know, I, we throw that, that term around a lot and it's become a little cliche, you know, ambassador of sports or ambassador of baseball. Mm-hmm. But but um, there's some significance with that phrase, uh, with this guest, yeah. um, well-traveled, um, well-connected, and just there's just some fa- fascinating stories revolving around yeah. this guy. Yeah, and I would even put him in the, the category of the Jerry Gattos, the John and Jack Dunn's and yeah. Especially just the people that we've recorded with as of recent and just what they've done in their respective communities over a period of time. Yeah, which which directly and indirectly, we're talking about influencing the culture and a kind of the building of this baseball identity in the Pacific Northwest and more mm-hmm. particularly in, in Portland and their impact. It's 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 there and it's significant. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Dave, I guess without further ado, let's introduce our actual guest that's in studio with us today, Mr. Rob Nelson. Rob, how are you doing today? Very well. Pleasure to be here. Thank you um, for coming uh, over to our home, recording uh, with us today. And we are very much appreciative of your time. And let's let's take jump right on into it, actually. So um, I guess uh, where we kind of want to start off with is, Rob, tell us a little bit about um, you as a youth in, in your first known uh, remembrance of baseball. I was born in Brooklyn. Uh, my family, not long after, moved out to Long Island. My dad was a New York City police officer. My mom was a mom, youngest of three brothers. We moved to Massapequa, Long Island, South Shore. Uh, the Baldwin brothers grew up there. Jerry Seinfeld grew up mm-hmm. there. It was a blue-collar neighborhood, and, mm-hmm. and it was awesome, really terrific. My first memories of baseball were when they created a Little League out there, the Massapequa International Little League. Mm-hmm. And I was eight years old, playing two innings every game, right field and one at bat. Nine years old, maybe two at bats. And I was 10. I was still on the minors and started to pitch a little bit. And as a left-hander, I could throw strikes. And uh, I realized very early on that I love this game. Yeah. Who was your favorite team growing up? It's interesting, as I would have to say the Yankees in the beginning, because Whitey Ford was their big star. Mm -hmm. And for most of my baseball life, I've worn number 16. In fact, jumping ahead a little bit, if you look at the character on the pouch of Big League Chew... He wears number sixteen, and that's huh. a tribute to Whitey Ford. Oh, cool! Well, Good to cool. know. Good to know. What? What? A, so, being a Yankee fan, what about the Mets? Is that just the hated Mets? Or? Absolutely not, because the Mets were a Long Island team. It, it, it always struck me, even when I was a kid, it struck me as being odd that 
that the Dodgers left Long Island because Brooklyn is a part of Long mm-hmm. Island. And they moved out to L.A. And then not long after, they brought in a brand new team called the Mets, 1962. When I was 13 years old, April of 1962, mm-hmm. Billy Lukasik and I went to the first game ever in the Polo Grounds yeah. for the New York Mets. Mm-hmm. My dad was still a cop at the time. He dropped us off in Harlem and said, Rob, if it rains, I'll pick you up at 5 o'clock. Go see a movie. And and I was a Met fan hooked from the beginning with the Polo Grounds, mm-hmm. with the whole idea. I mean, quite frankly, the, the, the New York Mets... At the big league level, we're kind of like the Portland Mavericks, you know, fast forwarding, you know, 15 years or so. And we'll, we'll get to talk about that a little bit later. But I did love the Mets for their charm, for their, their uh, enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the fans first started cheering, let's go Mets, it was, it was organic. There was, there was nothing that was yeah. contrived about that team. They just became who they were, the Amazons. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, fast forward to when I was in college, 1969, when they won the World Series. Kind it was out of phenom- nowhere, yeah. It was phenomenal. People ask me today, who do you root for? And I have to say, I root for baseball. Yeah, and at this point in my life, I root for left-handed pitchers who are a little bit older than the average bear. You know, <laughs> guys like Jamie Moyer over the years. Who, yeah, who, who basically I was at a much lower level. You yeah. know, obviously I never made it to the big leagues. I never got above single A. Mm-hmm. Even at single A with the Portland Mavericks, I was in over my head. Yeah. Did you ever see the film? Um that was the last play at Shea with Billy Joel and, and the history that they had behind that. It was such a well-done film, mm-hmm. the last play at Shea, because Billy Joel was also a Long Island guy, I think yeah. from Hicksville. And it traces the beginning of Billy Joel and the evolution of the Mets being the New York City team in uptown Manhattan and moving out to Long Island, 1964, the World's Fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shea Stadium is built. I mean, the U.S. Tennis Center is at that same location, yeah. not far from where the, where City Field is now, which used to be Shea Stadium. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the last play at Shea was fantastic. I, I love the story. Uh, uh, I, I just think it was really cool. Yeah, I love how he's, he always talks about that. Shea was built on a dump, and he talked about how, you know, everybody said Shea's name was a dump, but he's like, it was our dump, and we loved it. They owned it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It was beloved. Yeah. I, a, a high school teammate of mine, Tom Lucas, and I would hitchhike. We had a sign that would just say Shea from Massapequa, maybe 30 miles away. And we'd get there early and see batting practice mm. and just we were just so enamored with it. My brother Harry was a minor league ball player. He had a teammate, Bill Murphy, had a cup of coffee with the Mets. He got us into the dugout during batting practice. Wow. I met a crane pool. I, cool. I mean, it was, you know, to me it was like meeting Babe Ruth. Yeah. It was phenomenal. What was it? When you went to the stadium for the first time and you, your first time at a major league park, you know, what was that experience like for you? I think when you walk through that tunnel and you're in the city, I mean, the first park I ever went to was Yankee Stadium. Mm-hmm. I was too young for Ebbets Field. But Yankee Stadium, walking through that tunnel and seeing the green grass. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it's funny because I always remember cigar smoke because we were always in kind of cheap seats. And a bunch of guys who love baseball, just yeah. smoking cigars and having a beer and a hot dog. And watching and loving the game. Yeah, I mean, you're in a house that essentially Ruth built with, you know, the championships, the home runs, and just what he was able to do there. And just the history alone in that building, it must have been mind-blowing. I mean, I, I didn't get to ever go to the old Yankee Stadium, but 
I, it would have been on my bucket list of things to do. No so, question. And even being a 13-year-old going to the Mets uh, in the Polo Grounds, I mean, you knew that's where Willie Mays made the catch. That's where so much bait. I mean, the Yankees played in the Polo Grounds before they went across the river, and mm-hmm. they built, uh, obviously, the house that, that Ruth built in, in the Bronx. I mean, you could be in the upper deck at, at the Polo Grounds and look, and you could see Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit, a little bit. Some more memories would be good of uh, that '69 Mets team, the Amazons. Anything that stands out about that season, um, in particular, um, they just that team kind of came out of nowhere and uh, having having some struggles earlier on. And well, uh, they they were a dreadful team. I, you know, if I'm not mistaken, they were last place the year before. Mm-hmm. Gil Hodgers was a young manager, yeah. very much like the Red Sox this year. Yeah. With a lot of guys having career years. Oh, yeah. Uh, Peaking. Yeah. I, I texted a friend of mine as soon as the World Series was over here. They talked about Pierce. Is that his name? The fellow who won the NBA? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Steve Pierce. And they mentioned that he's the first midseason acquisition to be an MVP since Don Clendenin. Wow. Don Clendenin was with the Expos and the Pirates. Uh, a fascinating story. Uh, it was a college. He was like well, the little brother of Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, I know a lot about Don Clendenin, but he was a midseason acquisition. Acquisition, and he was he was the key player that they picked up mm-hmm. that made the Mets fly. I mean, you had Seaver, you had Kuzman, you had a young Nolan Ryan, super uh, yeah, remarkable team. But they had, they had role players. Ed Charles at third base, an older guy. Uh, just that great photo of his smile when they won the whole thing. Uh, it was just a a cosmic convergence mm-hmm. for the Mets to do what they had done. Yeah, and it was amazing that if you, you know, look, reflecting on the the Red Sox this year, you, you saw um, Betts, how he was doing well throughout the whole entire season. Then you get to the ALCS. Jackie Bradley Jr. had a wonderful ALCS yeah. hitting. And then the, for the two of them, you, you run into the World Series. It's like... To me, if it wasn't for Pierce, I, I just don't know how they would have gotten out of some of the situations that they got out of. The guy just hit phenomenally. Well, you know, that's the interesting thing about Don Clendenin being the MVP in 1969. I think he was, I was just reading about it recently. He was 5 for 14. I think he had three home runs. He just did some key things. He was stunned that he was picked as as, as the MVP. Mm-hmm. But but when you, he wrote a book that I that I happened to have and and... The, the commentary of his teammates saying that the key was Don Clendenin. It reminds me in 69 when the Knicks picked up Dave DeBuscher because the Knicks mm, won the yeah. NBA that same right. year, key and ambition. he was the key guy. Walt Bellamy and Howie Comives from New York to Detroit. Bellamy comes up, I mean, DeBuscher comes in and is the final piece of the puzzle, and, and the Knicks end up being the champions. Yeah. Uh, the Mets had that similar kind of chemistry to get that one guy, Don mm-hmm. Clendenin, at first base, and he was uh, a uh, platoon player with Eddie Cranepool. Mm-hmm. But even then, when you get to the World Series, you just you know you never know. Yeah, you never know, and, and obviously, clearly this year we didn't know. It was as far as Pierce would be the you have a great time like he did in the World Series. But let, let's just jump back to you. Um, you know, you know, your little league, and then moving upward. What was what was high school ball like for you? Well, bef- just before I became a varsity pitcher, I had the good fortune of Massapequa growing at such a pace 
that there were two high schools. Oh, it split right about that time. So yeah. I was like an expansion player. Oh, there you go. On I, I started as a, a sophomore, left-handed pitcher. And back then, Coach Don Lang was a minor league catcher and a wonderful guy. And uh, we played the same team. It was like minor league ball. You played the same team Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Hmm. And most teams would go with their ace on Monday and Thursday, pitch them on two days rest. And Mr. Lang threw me on Thursdays. So I got to go the ace. As against, a sophomore? Exactly. Yeah. I went against the ace of the other team's staff. And I was mm-hmm. well-rested and focused, and I kept charts, and I was doing stuff like that. You know, we're talking 1965. Yeah. And so I knew the hitters, and I knew how to pitch. I never threw particularly hard. But as a lefty, I could spot the ball. I could throw a breaking ball behind in the count, mm-hmm. 2-0. And I beat a lot of top guys from Long Island because they were a little bit tired. Let's face it. They're 17, 18 years old, but they're pitching on two days rest. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really cool. The coolest thing for me before I got into playing varsity ball, again, 1964, Shea Stadium mm-hmm. uh, opening. The Massapequa International Senior Little League, 13, 14, 15-year-olds. We won the World Series. Oh, no way. And I was on that team. So there are four teams in that league. Four teams in that league, and 18 guys are picked. 15 players and three alternates. So you had a 30% chance of making the All-Star team. Mm -hmm. You either took your bike or you walked to Carmen Road School. Four-team league. And we ran the table. We won a game in Princeton, and I think you could probably look it up. I know you could, but the longest game in the history of Little League Baseball postseason was Willingboro, New Jersey versus Massapequa, Long Island, 18 innings at Princeton Princeton University. And it took two days to finish. Richie Zoll, awesome pitcher, threw 12 zeros. I threw the last six. We won one nothing on a pass ball. In 18 innings. Wow. At Princeton University. And just as fast forward... So that was 1964. Seven years later, spring of 71, I called my dad and I said, they set up the pitching charts. I'm pitching the second game against Princeton. Oh, no way. <laughs> and I said, you I only ha- threw six, right? I haven't yeah. given up a run there yet, and I don't intend to give up one now. And I threw a shutout against wow. Princeton. It's the only game my dad ever saw me pitch from start to finish in huh. college. I was so happy that day. I remember taking the bus back from New Jersey up to Ithaca. It was just so much fun. So you can tell, you know, my baseball life, starting as a marginal player, 8, 9, 10-year-old, I finally make the majors. I'm 11 and 12 playing for the Red Sox. We win a championship. I still remember my first game-winning hit, red-haired, right-handed pitcher, uh, uh, single to left center field, and we won two to one. And I'm, you know, I'm 11 years old. Yeah, and I, you know, and I'm, you know, three months shy of 70 now. And I remember the pitch, 0 and 2 count, low and away. I went to left field, which was what I did with my Nelly Fox bat. Slapped it. But you don't forget stuff. Yeah. And it's funny, we'll talk about it later on, but the fact that I got to pitch in five continents, uh, all the guys I play with, they have that commonality. Whether it's from Sydney or Cape Town or London, they all remember stuff mm-hmm. when they were 11 years old. There's no game really like that. You know, I I, I just... The details, the specifics. The de- you know, I'd sent a text after the World Series to Jeff Idelson, who's a good friend. He's the president of the, the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I was talking about the Eckersley-Kirk Gibson 
first ball oh, ceremony. Yeah, 88, yeah. yeah. You know, and yeah. 30 years later, these guys are throwing the first pitch out in the World Series. And I say, you know, baseball is the only sport that has such a wonderful past and such an, an amazing future mm-hmm. because the new players, these guys are better than ever. Yeah. And, and I just feel lucky at the time that I grew up. Then I learned to appreciate the game. My dad wasn't that much of a ball player. He played mostly soccer as a kid. Mm-hmm. But he just, when we moved to Long Island, the first thing he did was he cut out a hole in the backyard. And everybody thought he was building one of these four-foot-high, above-ground swimming pools. <laughs> but he cut out the hole in the grass and then brought in more dirt. So my brother Harry and I had a pitcher's mound. And, oh, we, wow. built, and we built a, you know, a backstop as well, which my middle brother Ed, middle older brother Ed, used as a lacrosse goal. Because Eddie went to the dark side. He became a lacrosse player <laughs> in high school and college. And, and uh, so there it is. But, you know, the simplicity of that life. And I, I think that's one of the reasons my memories are so crystal clear. Mm-hmm. I, when I go back to Long Island, I'll have dinner with guys who are on that team, and they remember stuff. I have a, I have a, a teammate f- from that club, Marshall Lindner, just retired as a high school history teacher, 40-plus years as a high school baseball coach. He's wow. one of the most wow. successful friends I have. He had 70 years of coaching, 70 seasons, wow. 30 as a soccer coach. And, and 40 as a baseball coach. Wow. He's beloved on Long Island. He's, and he's an absolute champion. I mean, yeah. just, and so many of the guys on that team are like that. Jim Cavanaugh became a defensive backs coach at uh, uh, Virginia Tech, did that for 40 years. It's like each of the guys, we found a niche. And when we got, to back, when we got back together for the 50th anniversary in 2014, it was like, it was like we'd seen each other three weeks ago. It was yeah. just so fantastic. And I don't know what it is. Jim Bounton, my who became my business partner, but first was a you know a Portland Maverick teammate. He said that that big league shoe never would have happened with any other sport except baseball. Yeah, and I know I'm jumping all around here, but the, you know that's fast forwarding thing. But I knew that from early on that there was something special about this game. Mm-hmm. So getting back to the high school thing, Mr. Lyon gave me that opportunity, mm-hmm. and so I'm pitching as a sophomore. I lost in the Long Island semifinals, 13 inning game Ooh. against a wonderful guy, Artie Brown. Ended up going to NYU. We both went the route, and we lost five to three on my throwing error. And not like I remember that stuff, but it was 1965. I fielded a bunt badly and threw the ball into right field. Mm-hmm. My fault. But another amazing thing about baseball is when I lost that game, the next day in study hall, Mr. Carbone, Jerry Carbone, a music teacher, and then I was just writing in my notebook, and I felt his arm on my shoulder. And he just said, hey, Rob, you threw great yesterday. That was a good job. That's I ran cool. into Mr. Carbone like 30 years later, and I said, I'll never forget what you did when I lost the biggest game up until that point of mm-hmm. my baseball life. And you said that I'd done well. Yeah. And like a great teacher, he said, Rob, I don't remember that. So many good teachers. There are so many moments as an educator when you don't remember the kind things that you do, mm-hmm. but I do. Yeah. And as a teacher, as a coach, I try to do that, to do the small things. That's what, what my dad used to call the small victories around the dinner table. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the reasons I think my brothers and I have had such a good uh, uh, textured life. Yeah. That we appreciate the small stuff. Yeah. And baseball is all about the small it, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I might be jumping ahead a little bit, but you, you know, talk about Jim Bowden. 
I, I read somewhere that you had written him a letter as a youth, and you written him, you wrote him a letter. You talked about pitching, and that you and I think the story goes you had you guys connected you two, the two of you connected, and then you ended up meeting in a park, and Jim helped you uh, pitch and was practicing with you on pitching. I got out of Cornell, wasn't drafted. I made, okay, second team All-Ivy. If I'd beaten Harvard, I would have been first team. Oh, wow. <laughs> God, I could have yeah. been somebody, you know. Yeah. But uh, but I didn't. And uh, Jim was, at the time, he was a tired Yankee. He had written ball for He was doing local TV, ABC television. It was kind of fun news. In fact, Monday Night Football took the formula that Jim's team of announcers, broadcasters, mm-hmm. used on ABC TV. It was funny. It was irreverent, but it was really good. And I wrote to him. By that time, I was teaching elementary school in Ithaca, New York. I was throwing knuckleballs three nights a week just <laughs> to see if I could do something. And I said, I can't get more than one out of ten to work. And he wrote me back. And and he said, I'm pitching in Teaneck, New Jersey. And I went down and I visited him. Mm-hmm. This is the early seven, maybe 72. Yeah, it was before I left for Cape Town. And, uh, and then fast forward three years, I walk in the clubhouse in Portland uh, with with the Mavericks and Jim Bounton's there. I said, Jim, I don't know if you remember me, but you gave me 20 minutes of knuckleball time at the park in Teaneck. He said, I remember you. You were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a classic guy, uh, Jim. And then, of course, we became partners when I shared the idea I had for yeah. shred of bubblegum in a pouch. and. One of the great lines in my life was when Jim said, I love that idea. What would you call it? I was like, I plucked it out of the air. Yeah. I said, I don't know. Big League Chew? And that was it. Mm-hmm. He said, I like that name. Give me 20 more names. Yeah. And I have a sheet of loosely paper somewhere. It's it's right next to that 1962 Met ticket that I can't find. <laughs> That's funny. But, but the, yeah. uh, Jim had said, we can do this. And he put up 10 grand and we became the Big League Chew Company. Actually, he already had a business up and running. So we went with the Jim Batten Corporation. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, as they say, the rest is history. But to meet Jim Bouton. For, you know, out of the blue. And he said, you know, I had, my brother was a left-handed quarterback for the Cornell lightweight football team. They you had know, two different back then. There are yeah. like six or eight teams that still do it. It's called mm-hmm. sprint football now. Yeah. yeah. But it's like yeah. five or six Ivies, I think Army and Navy, and geez, Mansfield State in Pennsylvania. Their football program is a lightweight only program, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. Their homecoming is against Cornell. I mean, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Jim told me that his brother was a uh, a lefty quarterback with uh, with the Cornell lightweights, and I had no idea. And we just hit it off. And then when we were sitting in the bullpen, just hanging out, uh, we realized we had a lot more in common than beyond the game. Yeah. So let's let's jump back a little bit to. Uh, so your high school, and then you're, you're, you transition in, you end up going to a community college in, in the area. Actually, before then, mm-hmm. one school recruited me, uh, Marietta College, D3 mm-hmm. school. I was teammates. Is that in Georgia or something? Uh, no, Marietta, Ohio. Marietta, Ohio. Okay, gotcha. Uh, D3 powerhouse. Go mm-hmm. up against Linfield and the other green mm-hmm. D3 programs. Mm-hmm. I was teammates with Kent Tocolvi. His brother, Jerry, was a catcher with the freshman team. And uh, this is 1967, 1968. 
Kent at the time is throwing three quarters, has an arm problem, drops down, becomes a 20-year major leaguer with, wow. you know, the, the We Are Family Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah. He still does broadcasting for the Pirates. Mm-hmm. But, but small town Ohio, it just wasn't a great fit for me in the late 60s. My highlight there was I pitched the freshman game against Ohio University, and the, the cleanup hitter at OU went 0 for 4, and that was Mike Schmidt. Ooh. And I thought, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So that's really, pretty cool. Yeah. Really cool. <laughs> so the, yeah. so the, the one cool thing to do, uh, if you're going to spend some time in small town Ohio, is to pitch against a future Hall of Famer yeah. and get yeah. lucky. That, I don't even remember, if, but I'm guessing every line drive he hit got caught by somebody. <laughs> but then I, I went home to my parents, and I had a good financial aid package. My brother, Ed, was at Geneseo State. Uh, so, you know, we, dollars were scar- scarce. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, you know, I'm not going to go back to Marietta. And it was tough for my parents to accept because I was going there basically on uh, my summer earnings and what the school was giving me. Mm, my yeah. parents were really not out of pocket, mm-hmm. which they didn't have. And they said, what are you going to do? I said, yeah, I'll do, I'll do a year of community college. So I went to Nassau Community College. Mm-hmm. As luck would have it, we went to the Junior College World Series in Grand Junction, Colorado. Mm-hmm. I, I, I got hit like a pinata in Grand Junction. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it happens. And uh, I worked at JFK Airport, United Airlines, yep. air freight for four hours a night. And uh, spent a lot of time in New York City going to the Fillmore uh, you're living listen, the dream is what you're listening doing. to good music but you know it was kind of I think a Nelson family thing that you deal with the cards you got yeah yeah. and the fact that only one college recruited me at all uh, because I didn't throw hard uh, was interesting mm-hmm. and then even at Nassau we had a left-hander named Chuck Niffin who became a minor leaguer like 10-12 years at the AAA level I can't believe the Phillies never called him up he was the pitching coach for the Diamondbacks when Schilling was the uh, Cy Young winner. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and they won one. Yeah, They, they won, won the World one Series. Luis yeah. Gonzalez, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, Charlie Niffin was a great guy, but he was better than I was. And we had a lot of rain that spring. He pitched most of the games. So I just, mm-hmm. I think I was 2-0 and for Nassau. My junior year, I, then I get in the Cornell. And it felt like I went from community college to the Ivy League. I felt like I got called up to the Yankees. Yeah. I was just so... A little bit frightened, but obviously excited. And my parents were worried about, you know, are they going to lose their son who's become you know, kind of an Ivy League know-it-all kind of thing. Blue and blood, yeah. My brother Harry was working at Wagner College at the time, admissions office, and he traveled through upstate New York. And, and he got to see me pitch, and we'd hang out at the Fidelt house. And and I remember with the, very early on in my Cornell life, my brother and I had gone out to dinner, and he said, these guys have nothing on us, do they? And they said, you're right, Harry. They're just good guys. They're just regular people. Mm-hmm. You know, because in, from our community, it was like, an Ivy League was like a pedigree. You know, and I've yeah. since met guys like Rick Wolf, the son of Bob Wolf, the Hall of Fame broadcaster. Rick and I played summer ball together, and he's a Harvard guy. And he's he's like you guys. We, we'd go out and have a beer. He's just the most cool guy. Mm-hmm. And and that's when it was eye-opening for me to, to realize that, a lot of it is smoke and mirrors, and, and what matters mm-hmm. is authenticity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when yeah. I transferred into Cornell, nobody treated me like an outlier, that I didn't belong there. Mm-hmm. They, I was part of that family. And is that what your parents were concerned about a little bit, maybe? I think so. Yeah. I, I think yeah. they thought that, that I would become, uh, what's the word, unenamored with the life I had growing up. Right. And if anything, I appreciated it even more. Because yeah. Okay. I, you know, gotcha. my brother Ed used to say... Uh, 
that the goal in the, the, the dinner table is to try and make milk come out of your brother's nose. To come up with something <laughs> so funny that they would just laugh uncontrollably. Yeah. Eddie's been a special ed teacher for 45 years. Hence oh, wow. his nickname, Special Ed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and Harry was a minor league player with the Yankees, college administrator, ran restaurants in the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. Uh, does hitting with Harry at my baseball camp. I still go back to Long Island now and do two weeks of baseball yeah. school on the east end of Long Island. So that whole family and baseball thing, it's almost like we're a cliche. It's almost like we were the real Nelson family from the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. But I think that uh, I'm really grateful for that. When I read things about Jerry Seinfeld and his father, Cal, with a K, Mr. Seinfeld was the village sign painter. And I'd see billboards that were signed Cal Seinfeld, S I G N F E L D, because he was painting signs. Mm -hmm. And I remember being 12, 13, saying, I wonder if that's his real name. (laughs) And then when I heard that Jerry Seinfeld's show was like a huge hit, a high school friend of mine, Jerry Passman, Marty Passman, called me from uh, Atlanta and said, "Uh, Have you seen Seinfeld yet? And they said, I haven't, but my parents love that show. He said, he's the Massapequa guy. He's Cal's son. Everybody knew Mr. Seinfeld as the sign painter. And when Jerry writes about his dad and his family, and there are episodes in Seinfeld where he's walking in Manhattan with Kramer or or with with George, uh, there'll be a neon sign at a shop that says Cal's Signs. And it's like a little little thank you note to his father. Mr. Seinfeld passed away before Jerry hit the jackpot. Same thing with Mr. Baldwin. He, they never got to appreciate the success that their boys had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that whole idea that, that family really matters, uh, it comes through when Alec Baldwin talks about his family and, and when Jerry Seinfeld talks about his family. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a small part of that thing. And the pantheon of those things, you know, I'm a little bubblegum guy. And, Mm-hmm. But those guys, you know, they're in the big leagues. I'm still kind of on the single A chart, you know, <laughs> in the scheme of things. You yeah, know? I think you're beyond single A. But um, uh, so you you play at Coriel, and then I was reading that your senior year you went six and two, and you only you only lost to Michigan State and Harvard that year. Michigan State won the Big Ten. They had seven guys who were drafted. Oh wow. Uh, Brad Van Pelt was on that team. He was a linebacker for the Giants. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a lot of good players. And Harvard, I had a blister, and, and I gave up a home run to right field. And it, anyway, that stuff happens. But, yeah, I felt I felt uh, not vindicated, but I just felt good about the fact that I, I, I could still pitch. Yeah. I, I could still do it. The All-Ivy second team thing was a fun thing to have. I'd love to get together like 50 years later. Who are the All-Ivy baseball team's second team? I mean, are they running Microsoft? You know, I'd love to know <laughs> right. where, yeah. where are they now? Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. And, and I'm going to try and put that together. The all mm-hmm. Ivy first team and second team and see who really, you know, made a, a, a difference, who had an mm-hmm. impact. But because of that, I it rekindled my love for the game. Yeah. And it's, you can find it somewhere, but I, I hopped in my car in April of 72 and I just, hit the road trying out for teams. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up signing with the St. Louis Cardinals for three weeks. <laughs> I was listening to a story about this. And I, and I was going to ask you about this. I, re- I was telling weeks. Dave. 1972. <laughs> all right. Bill Ripkins become a good friend. And he thinks it's hilarious. In fact, when I got to do Hot Stove with Harold Reynolds, 
Uh, and I forget the Joyce. What's his first name? Jim Joyce. Yeah, yeah. They, they uh, uh, great show, and and all they dwelled on was my three weeks as a St. <laughs> Louis as a St. Louis Cardinal in St. Petersburg, Florida. Actually, Sarasota, Florida. A half a cup of coffee, huh? Yeah, not even <laughs> an espresso. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Demi tasse. There right? it is. Yeah, thimble. Uh, but it wasn't so much that I got three weeks of minor league baseball. It's that I was Dave Raymond. A buddy of mine was left-handed, four years younger than I. Surfer dude, lives in San Diego now. Just a wonderful friend. I said, Dave, if I make the big leagues, you get 10%. But I really want to do this. And he said, yeah, Nelly, I'm good, I'm good with that. Back then, the New York State driver's license didn't have a photo. I mean, it was a dopey thing to do. Mm-hmm. But again, going back to my family. Who gets a philosophy degree from Cornell (laughs) (laughs) and doesn't go to law school or grad school or something? And my mom and dad, they just had this confidence that, okay, their left-handed son is a little unusual, but he's going to end up on his, he's going to end up on his feet. Yeah. And when I signed, uh, uh, nobody could believe it. The coolest thing, I mean, a lot of cool things about it, but the catcher I pitched to was a wonderfully humble, Left-handed hitting catcher, and I was getting tattooed time and again. And he would come out and say, get the ball down, change speed, we're okay. His name was Randy Poffo, and Randy was a wonderful guy. Didn't make it in baseball, but Randy became Randy Macho Man Savage, the wrestler. That's yeah. awesome. Ooh, yeah. yeah. So the fact Macho that, the fact that I started. Slim Jim. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah exactly. Yeah, the fact that I, had, that I had a, a three-week baseball life under a fake name, and Randy was using his real name, and we kind of crowd, you know, the, that line crossed, you know, that he became Macho Man, and I went back to being a Rob. And, uh, and so there it was. I got a job teaching first grade in Ithaca, New York, and it just wasn't for me. I still had the baseball Jones. Uh, I was at the Someplace Else Tavern, summer of 72. I overhear two guys from Ithaca College talking about this thing their coach had received, a letter talking about baseball mm-hmm. in South Africa in Cape Town. And I didn't say anything. I just overheard these guys. It was my it was my, my pub of choice when I was in school. And uh, I went to Ted Thorne the next day. It was the summer of 72. And I said, what do you know about Cape Town baseball? And he said, Nelly, this is perfect for you. Hmm. You get, you'd get to teach. You get to pitch. And he said, you know, in today's world, you'd be playing class D ball somewhere. But he said, that world is gone. He said, he said, I've had a lot of guys come through these doors. Ted coached for almost 40 years. He said, nobody loves the game the way you do. He said, go do this. You got to interview the dad of the guy who started the program. He was a Rotary Exchange student named Dave Lutz from Trumansburg. And his Rotary stint was up. The club said, can you find somebody like you? Which was damned funny because he was young and a hard-throwing right-hander. Mm-hmm. And I was old and a soft-throwing left-hander. Ooh. But I met Mr. Lutz, who was a school teacher in, in the, the Ithaca area. And uh, he said, Rod, this is a perfect fit. I ended up going over there and I pitched two seasons there. And it's a funny thing about being in your 20s that I was having really good success. They didn't see many lefties there. There weren't oh, many guys who could yeah. throw curveballs behind in the count. I threw 200-plus innings in back-to-back years, player of the year one year. The second year, we won the national championship. And I frankly thought I was better than I was. Mm-hmm. My dad sent me a packet of sports clippings, as he would do every three, four weeks. 
And I was at the Cornaby Hotel having breakfast with a teammate, Dwight Lurie. And he said, Nellie, what are you going to do when the season's over? And I had just read in the sporting news that an independent team in Portland, Oregon had open tryouts. And I didn't even know how to say it, but I said, I'm, I'm going to go to Oregon <laughs> and try yeah. out for this team and, and see what happens. I really felt my goal. I remember, you know, as a you know, 26 year old that I was going to come to Portland. I was going to win 10 games in a short season and somebody would buy my contract mm, yeah. from this independent team. I mean, I thought I was going to come here and dominate. When I came to try out, Ralph Coleman was was uh, Frank Peters' bench coach, and it's Coleman Field at Oregon State. Frank yeah. played for Mister Coleman, you know, when he was a Beaver, and uh, and Coley gave me a chance. I threw three great innings. The Oregon Journal says kid comes from Africa, looks like he's going to make the team, and uh, you know I'm over the moon about this. Mm -hmm. And then three days later on a Sunday, again I get tattooed at uh, at the ballpark. Yeah. And the biggest memory I think I have of that time was that Sunday morning, the tryouts continuing, and I went to Bing Russell, the owner of the team, and I said, Mr. Russell, I know last night I just pitched myself off this team, but I'm not going to leave. I, I like this town. I'll throw mm -hmm. batting practice. I'll sell tickets. That's cool. I'll do what you need to do. And and he said, stick around. Wow. That's amazing. But before, well, we're going to, I think, almost end it here, but... I want to jump back to Africa. One of the things that I had read is that you had worked on your curveball while you were there, and that you hung it a little bit, a little bit more, and it was <laughs> it, it, it was like it, it extended your, your your career a little bit more. Well, it's a true story because you know I ended up pitching in South Africa, Australia, and England, which are very cricket dominated countries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the guys, if you know anything about cricket, you start with your bat yeah. on the ground and you have this tremendous upswing. They would mm -hmm. say launch angle today, right? Chris, Chris yeah. Bryan style. But yeah. I realized that if I could twirl the thing and kind of let it sit for a little bit, I mean, some of my curveballs in Cape Town looked like punts. Yeah. I mean, they were just. Almost. Ephus curve, yeah. And, yeah. and, and so you, you, you do what you got to do, you know. You make the adjustments. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's anything about my baseball life and what's happened after that, it's that you just you can't have a fixed position on on what you're going to do. Yeah. When I got my philosophy degree, my dad, New York City police officer, driving from Ithaca back to Long Island, I remember him saying with my mom in the front and I'm in the back seat, well, Robert, you got your philosophy degree. What's your philosophy? I said, Dad, I'm going <laughs> to get a parent. job probably at the Lobster Inn. I'll be a busboy. I'll pay off my student loans. And I'm not sure what's going to happen next. But uh, uh, I'm going to pay my bills. Wow. And I remember my dad saying, good plan. That was it. <laughs> that was it. So last question. Um, can you talk a little bit about the camps that you conducted? Because I was reading you you conducted some free baseball clinics in segregated communities outside of Cape Town. What what was what was that? Can you talk a little bit about that and the experience and what was it like for you? I think that was largely because of Brian Lombard, who was the, the skipper of the, the varsity old boys team in Rondebosch in Cape Town. And he would organize these things where we could get to do you know, baseball clinics and, and 
teach you know the fundamentals of the game. And it was from that experience when I didn't make the Mavericks that I started the Little Maverick Baseball School because I really got hooked on that mm-hmm. idea of connecting with, with kids. Yeah. But I, I, I give credit to Brian Lombard, who's you know late 70s now, still throwing BP to nine-year-olds in, in Cape Town. Just, just a uh, South African baseball Hall of Famer. And deservedly so, just an absolute great guy. But that really kind of lit the fire under me that mm-hmm. that there's more to the game than just going out and throwing the three two curveball for a strike. It's it's bigger than that. Yeah. You know the the baseball mm-hmm. initiative they have now. You know playball. Uh, you know dot org. Uh, you know we were kind of ahead of the curve on that. That we were yeah. just encouraging kids to learn a handful of fundamentals and just learn how to love the game. Yeah. I'm, I'm still doing that now out on Long Island every summer. That's excellent. Well, thank you for coming on on this episode. Um, really appreciate it. It was some great uh, information, and I really loved um, hearing a lot about your youth up through to uh, your time in Africa. That, that was just uh, amazing, and, and all this had to have been an amazing experience. So, uh, you know, we, we will be back for a part two with Mr. Rob Nelson, uh, but we uh, will end it for here. I'm Ben. And I'm Dave. And, and I'm Rob. And thank you for joining us. You have a great day, and wherever you are. My pleasure. Thanks so much. All right. Peace out. <laughs>